actually start before I ask you my questions. Um, there was a great question that came up on the chat from uh, from Mr. Brownstone, and he was wondering, uh, are you writing a book on this subject by any chance? Well, at present, I don't really have any um, any interest in writing a book, uh, simply for the fact that I'm too busy with a few of my uh, clients. But I think maybe in the future, a series of blog posts on how to write a very effective security skeleton, or maybe something in CodeFlex where we can get the uh, community involved. I think that's something I'd like to do, because when I did the, um, the tech day sessions on, on the security skeleton, I kind of identified a niche that was missing in the industry, and it's this notion of having a skeleton to protect your ASP.NET website. We have uh, frameworks, let me give you an example, Backtrack 5 and Metasploit. You want to find a payload of vulnerability on a website, it's easy. You download those two tools and you can go ahead and penetrate, um, even if you're just a junior, you can pen test your ASP.NET website. But Defending your HP.NET website, you're going to have to assemble bits and become familiar with them. So why not have a common repository and have that link to your documentation? So I found that niche, and I, I think that maybe later on, if we can do a few blog posts on your uh, MSDN <laughs> Canada blog posts, well, perhaps we can get going in that direction. Thanks for uh, thanks for the little plug there. That was great. <laughs> but uh, actually, on the uh, on the same notion of open source and, and stuff like that, Mr. James had a question for you. Um, other than the fact that he was saying, Joel, this is great stuff, um, and I keep saying Joel, I'm sorry, Joel. Um, he says, it seems that a lot of this could be common to many projects. Do you have an open source project incorporating this via NuGet or similar? So I think you kind of answered that question, but um, maybe if you wanted to add anything on top of that. Sure, I think that right now I don't have anything concrete, but uh, there's definitely I'm going to do something on CodeFlex. I'm going to start assembling the pieces. I'd like to do a blog post at the same time. So this way it's sort of like a teach as you go. But I find sometimes even myself, I go on CodeFlex, I download some code, uh, I'll put it on a side by, I'm not really happy with the documentation. I find sometimes people think that other people will go on CodeFlex, dump the code, and then try to profit from uh, some consulting practices. I don't want to go that route. I'd rather do small sketches, maybe a few blog posts a month, and let the community augment as well. So if Mr. Uh, I think it's Brownstone or Brown? Yeah, Mr. Brownstone. Or Mr. James was asking. James, okay, so if Mr. James is asking, he could come and augment, I'll augment, and we could work together and then build this ASP.NET security scale. If we take a look at the ASP.NET uh, login, just as an example, uh, has it really changed that much in four years? Uh, I've got about 40 things that I'd like to add to the uh, ASP.NET login control, and perhaps we could add that in the CoFlex and move along, and maybe one day it'll be integrated in the product itself. So let me ask you something. You started the, the talk um, by sort of focusing on documentation, um, and the part that you know kind of was an eye-opener for me um, was, you know, that it actually starts all the way back then. Most developers would think, oh, you know, it's just you know, standard coding practices that I have to make my application secure. But your take on it was it was actually not so much even, obviously the code is important, but um, you know, you were saying about the, the documentation. Why is it that you think that m most actually, um, you know, sort of don't have that in their in their day-to-day -day practices? Well, for me, herein lies an intrinsic problem with some of our business processes or the SDLCs we use is that the penetration testers or the uh, security officers or the threat risk uh, agents, uh, the people that do the analysis, always come in at the end of the project. 
reason being, it's quite expensive to do a pen test on your website, and th this goes along, along by um, due to the fact that if you want to be a pen tester, it's quite difficult, takes quite a bit of a uh, long time, there's a lot of risk involved. If you take a software architecture document and you model out the security vulnerabilities from the start, you'll be able to educate your developers right from the start, and as you're coding, you're going to mitigate against, let's say, anti-script, um, anti-cross-site scripting or cross-site request forgery. You do that from the start and you do it on multiple levels. Don't just rely on one thing. What happens is at the end of the project, you're not scrambling or worried about your release. You've got other things to worry about two weeks before the release, fixing the last few bugs that your clients want. Uh, it's not time to start worrying about the security or doing the TRE at that time. Evidently, you have to go live and when you go live, you have to do the TRE on a production system. But if you do it correctly on a QAP system, it should be reciprocal to what you have, and then you can launch and go live and, and have no worries, essentially. So I know when I'm talking to developers, um, one of the questions that I get often when it comes to security is, how do you actually make the business case um, to clients, uh, especially if you're building an internal um, enterprise application or uh, you know corporate application? You know, how do you make the business case for um, effectively building in code that doesn't have a business function, right? I, I find that, you know, the first response is always, you know, just get rid of it. it we'll, we'll take care of it eventually. And then, of course, we all know um, that never actually happens. I think there's a few different ways of doing so. Uh, one of them, if, if I have to do a push, if I have to try to convince someone, I usually go on Twitter and just show them the anti-sec feed and show them how many things are compromised. And if you take a look at some of the big agencies in the U.S., we won't name any of them, uh, big security agencies, they've all been hacked last year. We had the emergence of new terms, the hacktivist, the privacy by design last year. So we see there's a, um, nothing is really secure. So sometimes you got to tell the customer that whatever you have in your database, if you expose that to the web, you have to be almost ready to share that with others. because. Uh, there's no such thing as a secure website. It's very nice. Everybody likes to say uh, that they're secure. They have these nice little things on their website saying they're, they're hacker-proof and whatnot. Uh, th this is not exactly the case. So you have to be very realistic with the client, explaining to them that, well, let's put these mitigations into place. Let's get your clients, because they might be your client, but they have clients themselves. Um, uh, get those clients to have uh, some confidence in you and then that'll help you in your business practices. So if I secure your website, that helps you with your everyday business processes. Um, that's going to help you and aid you quite a bit, but there's no really, uh, there's not really uh, such a thing as a secure website. That's my true opinion. Now, um, before I go to the questions in the chat, which you'll, you'll see me smiling, um, just because the conversation is absolutely great. Um, I'll preface the, the, com the question from Tester um, by asking you this first. Do security principles or do the, the things that you were talking about in the documentation and in the preparation that you need to do, do those go away just because you're building an application that's purely for internal use? Uh, I don't think so. Let's take, for example, a cross-site request forgery. Um, the fact that you're persisting a cookie that somebody can go across and then um, let's say that you have an application internal at the government, I'll give you uh, an easy one, one for travel and hospitality, where you can manipulate funds for the travel and hospitality of the directors. That's an internal product. Well, you don't want somebody who's an executive assistant clicking on something where a CRSF token gets sent across and then it manipulates that money and then maybe uh, take some funds out. Sometimes it's not 
necessarily stealing money from someone, but if you take somebody who's a CIO, perhaps at the government level, and you see that the data has been manipulated, well, then that's going to spark something, an internal investigation, and that's where the cost uh, lies. So if you have an internal investigation on why there's all these uh, um, TNAs uh, that are all over the place, um, you're going to have to probably spark an internal investigation. is going to cost you quite a bit of money. So for an internal app, you probably won't have to do as much, but you still have to put in the basics. That, that's my take on it. Like protecting against a distributed denial of service attack on the uh, on an internal site is, is ridiculous, but definitely cross-site scripting, SQL injection, and all of the basics should be handled. So uh, the reason why I asked that was actually because a tester on the chat uh, was saying, do you trust all your coworkers, right? So, you know, the AU um, tester was talking about that's actually one reason to build security into your in-house applications because you can't necessarily trust every single one of your coworkers. Um, and then, of course, Mr. James adds on that, uh, you know, it's not just the coworkers, but it's actually even the deployment team, the support teams, and everybody else that's, that's in the process. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Uh one thing that I've seen recently is, uh, you know how we say don't store any passwords in the web config and we encrypt that. I've seen um, someone actually go as far as the, there's no passwords written down at any time. There's only one person who actually knows the uh, the password, the database person, puts it in, does a deploy, and then that's it, it's forgotten. That's the only person. So the least people that have these secrets, the better it is, and I have to agree with them. Sometimes it could be a disgruntled employee, sometimes it could be a client, sometimes it could be somebody who handles the deployment. Not that that would Just, ever happen, of course. It all depends on the party? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, in, in, in talking about all of this, and, and you know, security obviously vastly important, um, you started off the conversation by talking about securing web applications. What if we took that one step broader and say, okay, well, how do we, how do we secure and then subsequently test for um, any .NET application, so you know if it's a um, you know a, a worker process uh, or maybe a, a phone application or a cloud application, I'm assuming these principles all still um, maintain the same. Maybe just their implementation is slightly different. That's correct. So usually, if you have a vulnerability, it can it's common across all vectors. So if you're utilizing a phone and I decide to put an SQL injection attack in there, if you have an SQL backend you're not mitigating against it, it's probably going to go through a web service, uh, which is another great example. Like a web service, you have to cleanse what comes in because that's going to, uh, to go to a data store at a certain point. So whatever affects your .NET uh, forms application, whatever affects your web service, whatever affects your Windows phone, they're, they're approximately the same. So you have to mitigate at all levels. Cool. And then from a tooling perspective, I know you went through uh, some of the tools um, in your talk, but is there stuff that developers can use that's actually built right into Visual Studio that would actually be able to help them, you know, kind of get started right away um, and then, you know, add on all the additional tools that you were showing? Well, some of the things that I like from Microsoft right now, they have a web protection library that has the Microsoft anti-cross-site scripting integrated into it. I like that one because it comes to augment. So if you take a look at ESP.NET, the request validators, uh, personally, since I know a few things, I can bypass them. I have know about seven techniques to bypass those request validators. So what I like to do is I take the Microsoft anti-XSS, I add it, and it comes to augment. It also whitelists, and it uh, does quite a few nice things. Um, you can use things like get safe uh, HTML fragment. 
and that will go and clean the code. So now what happens is you have two levels of security. You have the request validators, you have the anti-XSS. I like adding an HTTP module that verifies cookies, form values, anything that's posted, and that's sanitized at that level. So it has to go through all three levels. So this way you know whatever is getting entered on your website is almost uh, not foolproof, but it's quite a bit safe. Um, to add to that, I think Microsoft added a CAS port access uh, security inside the Visual Studio, and there's also a scanner now that you can scan and it tells you what's wrong with the code or attempts to tell you a few things. I forget the name, but I've run it before. And I think that was in beta when I first got Visual Studio 2010. Yeah. That is a great tool. Uh, for, to augment the question, if you're interested in a tool, see here, Metasploit. That's the tool here that you want if you want to test your web applications. Metasploit, and I would say Backtrack 5, it's a Linux tool. Those two things will incorporate everything that you need. They're all integrated. Perfect. I actually see that uh, we have Steve that's um, here with us as well. I thought we weren't going to have him, but let's see if we can actually get him connected in here because that would obviously be great to have his opinions as well. Here we go. Look at that. Like, it's spoken like a true um, security expert. Let me get him over to you guys. Look at his um, look at his avatar there, right? How, you can't get any better security than not having your own picture. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Hey, Jonathan, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I was actually uh, I, I was worried, to, you know, in terms of. Um, just to, to give you guys a little bit of a funny story, when I was preparing for the show, um, you know, and, and all of the introductions, I said to Steve, I'm like, Steve, do you have a picture that I can put um, in the show? And he's like, dude, I'm a security guy. I don't do pictures, just voice. I may or may not exist. <laughs> so um, I only exist in the ether. There you go. Um, and for you, for those of you guys who actually haven't met uh, Steve Seifus, he's actually um, a developer security MVP as well, um, and certainly uh, talks about security pretty much uh, night and day. Um, and Steve, you mentioned something very interesting in the chat there um, about not all attacks come from a hacker. Um, Mother Nature is the biggest attacker. What do you, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. So. About uh, a month ago, uh, just right after Christmas, I moved to uh, BC from Toronto. So I'm in a small town called Chilliwack in, in BC. Um, and for the last month or so, we've we've uh, we've been ramping up to, to release a new product. Actually, a couple of new products and uh, a new customer portal. We've decided to migrate everything to the cloud because you know that's where everything's going. So uh, you said, last you week, said we, the magic word cloud. The cloud. I yes, have I, to ask you about that a little bit later. Oh, <laughs> uh, we we can talk about that later. Uh, so last week we decided to deploy, and. Uh, there has been some rampant power outages around the office, and it's it's funny because it's, it wasn't the whole city; it was just our little block. You know, we're it's a small. We're in a little residential area for the most part. We have there are a couple offices around, and and the power just went out. And we're you know you know my boss and I were driving down the road. We just grabbed some dinner because it was a late night, and uh, we're we're driving. And all of a sudden, the power goes out right in front of us, and and you know he's swearing and I'm swearing. We get back to the office, power is out, and you know, we say okay, that's fine. So we go off and we're we're doing something else. Power comes back on, and uh, he gets a flat tire as we're still driving around. 
So uh, all these different things are, are lining up, and we haven't actually touched the deployment yet. And, and, and uh, at one point, uh, our internet crapped out, so nice. it's just gone. It's, it's, it's down to, we're uploading at uh, 5K a second. And it's a relatively large package. It's about 20 megs that we need to upload. And it, it takes time on a 5K up. So at one point on Friday, we'd, you know, we were up all night Thursday making sure everything was, uh, was working. And then, and then Friday morning, I get into the office, power goes out. Okay, great. We're in, we're in the cloud. We don't really care about it. And then we realized that we had a minor bug in our deployment. Things didn't work. And the power was out. We knew exactly what the bug was. We were ready to f deploy to fix it, but we couldn't do anything because power was out, internet was down. There was nothing we can do. So we said, you know what? We're going to go to our, our, uh, our disaster recovery site, which was across town. It was the only place in, in town, by sheer luck, it was the only place in town that actually had power. There was a, a fire at the power substation. Power was down all day. Uh, uh, you know, there were a couple, a couple angry customers, but uh, after every, after everything was back online, everybody was happy. They, we, we explained what happened, and they're just like, "Really? The the substation actually caught fire?" It's like, "Well, yeah." And so, what some of these things you can plan for. Some of these perspective, though. Well, from a security perspective, uh, uh, we did. There were no vulnerabilities. The problem was that we were down. Ah, got it. So that was that was the problem. Uh, uh, the, the the there was no the the interesting thing was there really was no uh, um, uh, way to resolve the problem without having power. So what did we do? We had a backup site. So we drove wow. to the backup site. We 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 stacked up all our computers. We we turned them on and we, you know, it took five. It took it took an hour to do the move. It took five minutes to to write the patch. It took twenty minutes to deploy, and you know we were back online. Wow. Hey, Steve, so the moral, um, the moral of that story is uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, Mother Nature uh, uh, does, uh, is a very big attacker. You know, it happens more often right. than you think. Now, um, I asked uh, Joelle this question before, um, and also with you, you did a session um, on cloud security at Tech Days. The question that I had for Joelle was actually, how do, if they do, security principles change when you're changing the type of platform that you're working on? So very quickly, um, from a cloud perspective, some of the the standard, um, you know, the standard security principles. Do those change just because you're going to the to the cloud? Do you need to be doing more or less because you're in the cloud? Uh, about ten years ago, uh, someone uh, coined the terms the ten immutable laws of security. Uh, as a developer, we know that immutable means essentially that it cannot change. Uh, funny enough that they're on version two of that. Uh, but uh, security really doesn't change at a, at a principle level. Um, when we say, you know, when we, when we look at different types of attacks, uh, uh, conceptually, they never change. It's just a question of, of, of how are they implemented, how do we protect against them. Uh, the cloud is really no different. By deploying to the cloud, you get some benefits. Uh, for instance, you get, uh, you get uh, um, automatic patching, so the, the attack vector of a, of a, a zero day uh, or a, uh, a, you know, a flaw in a, in a design that, that, that just got patched. Uh, we don't really have to worry about things like that just because uh, uh, we're not managing well. We don't, it's not that we don't worry about it, it's that, that, that there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So we tend, to, we tend to push it off to the side and, and hope the, the people that we're giving money to are actually doing their job. 
That's the, we, we have <laughs> we have trust in them. Uh, and at the same time, there are a couple new security problems we have to worry about. Uh, um, um, uh, for instance, uh, everything's now running in virtual machines, so uh, there are new attack vectors that that crop up uh, because everything uh, is sort of coexisting on on the same machines. You could have you could potentially have a have a have a uh, you know uh, uh, an attacker who's sitting on the same physical hardware as you in a different virtual machine. So you know how do you protect against them breaching the underlying hardware and going across the hypervisor into your system? Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, gentlemen, we're actually right at the end of the show. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us again, guys that are uh, guys and gals, I should say, that are watching. Um, if you have any questions for Joel or you have any questions for Steve in terms of anything security related, both from a, a web perspective and also from a cloud perspective, um, join us on the uh, the LinkedIn group, and uh, we'll answer those questions there. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, gentlemen, and uh, we'll be in touch uh, shortly. Thank you. Thank you, John.